the government's not interested in doing anything, frankly, but trying to um, protect itself against challenges, legitimate challenges, about its failure to uphold its human rights responsibilities. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Valdez Simmons, who's the Refugee and Migrant Rights Program Director at Amnesty UK. So welcome, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. Um, It's a pretty precarious time in the world with the events that are taking place in the Ukraine with with the invasion by Russia, which the... The United Nations Refugee Agency is estimating that there may be about 4 million refugees. Um, I wonder what Amnesty's immediate response is to the way that the Home Office has dealt with the offer, the initial offer, and the subsequent offers, and the U-turns. Well, I, I think the Home Office response to this latest crisis on this occasion for Ukrainian people, mm-hmm. um, really says a lot about how this department for, for many years and indeed many decades mm-hmm. has been created, encouraged, instructed to take as a basic position the idea that its job is little more than obstructing and preventing people mm-hmm. coming to this country and certainly obstructing and preventing people who wish to come to this country because they need asylum here. Mm. And we've seen that played out in relation to uh, more recent events. Clearly, Ukrainian refugees, mm. and you know, it's very difficult to talk in these terms, but I'm about to say, but um, they have a benefit that, that some refugees don't have, mm. so far as our government is concerned and our country is concerned, in that they are receiving a considerable higher degree of public, political, media attention Mm -hmm. than do many people forced to flee crisis and war elsewhere. And that clearly has put the Home Office under a huge amount of pressure to try and in the media eye and in the political eye and in the public eye, Mm -hmm. show itself in a light which it is completely unfamiliar with. And that's why we've had these changed positions that you refer to each time the Home Office trying to, if you like, get ahead of that pressure, but without any real sense of commitment, because if it really was committed to providing safety to people, um, none of these piecemeal statements would have been needed. We'd have just had a very quick reaction to guaranteeing a place of safety to Ukrainians in this country, as indeed has happened elsewhere in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very stark difference with the way that, say, Afghan nationals or Syrian nationals have have been treated. And it, it comes at a time when the Home Office has um, introduced this Nationality and Borders Bill, which is currently going through Parliament. What, what do you make of that? Do you think that they will ditch this nationality and borders bill, because essentially it says that people who arrive here without prior authorization could be criminalized. Could we see a situation where 
Ukrainians who somehow make it here end up criminalized? I think there is no chance whatsoever that this government will scrap its bill. I think it is completely committed to passing that legislation in the form that it created it. Um, there have been substantial changes made to it by the House of Lords, which now have to go back to the House of Commons. And I think the government will do everything that it can, and it clearly has the numbers, to simply throw out all the House of Lords changes. Mm. I don't think it gives one care in the world what this would mean for a Ukrainian, an Afghan or a Syrian refugee, let alone a refugee from such places and conflicts as Yemen, Ethiopia, Congo, mm -hmm. or repression in Eritrea and other places elsewhere. I do think it's probably not that likely that a Ukrainian refugee, albeit criminalised if they were to make one of these journeys, would be that likely to be prosecuted, certainly not in the current climate. Mm. I think there might be a discretionary decision not to prosecute the Ukrainian, but they might well pro prosecute the Eritrean in exactly the same boat for exactly the same thing. Why would that be, Steve? Why Why would they, there be this deferential treatment? Is is it something to do with the public gaze? Or what? Well, what, what is it? It's everything to do with the public gaze. It's it's everything to do with the fact that there is a huge degree of attention at this moment in time on Ukraine, mm -hmm. that the sympathy of the public is on the whole, I'm sure there are some people who aren't sympathetic, but on the whole is very much with the need to provide protection to people fleeing that particular conflict. Mm -hmm. um, the degree of sympathy amongst the public is not the same in relation to other conflict and repression. And not solely, but partly that is because other places don't get that sort of attention. Mm. And, and those who could give it attention take no leadership in explaining to the public that, you know, if you feel quite rightly mm. that a Ukrainian fleeing war should be um, provided safety and this country should play its part in that, there is no reason whatsoever mm. to feel any differently about someone from somewhere else who often happens to be, let's face it, not white, mm -hmm. um, but who has exactly the same problem and need, and who, for that matter, this country has exactly the same obligation to share in ensuring that asylum is provided. So do you think there are substantial grounds then, if, if the Nationality and Borders Bill passes without the House of Commons upholding those amendments which were made in the House of Lords, will there be grounds for for amnesty to, say, bring, bring a legal challenge for this deferential treatment that happens to people? Because, I mean, there are Russian bombs that were dropping in Syria in the same way that there are Russian bombs dropping in, in the Ukraine. And the idea that they can somehow be a two-tier system of people getting deferential treatment is inconceivable. Um, it should be inconceivable. Um, would Amnesty consider a legal challenge? I, I'm, I'm sure that we and others will mm. give very serious thought to that. Mm -hmm. The difficulty for us, to be absolutely frank, is going to be this is 
what we're talking about is going to be in what we call primary legislation, in an act yeah. of parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, that has a very important meaning in our legal system because acts of parliament are um, essentially the supreme source of law for this country. Yeah. You know, we don't have some underlying written constitution. We mm-hmm. don't have some underlying commitment at a domestic level to international law, such as the Refugee Convention. Mm-hmm. So um, the basic position ordinarily, is what what Parliament says goes. And if Parliament is sufficiently explicit in an act of Parliament, then there isn't very much legally that can be done about that. Now, there'll be questions about how clear Parliament has been. There'll be efforts to try and show that Parliament cannot truly have meant such an appalling distinction as you've just referred to, But the intentions look quite plain on the face of this particular bill. So I think we must all be, um, at the very least, pessimistic about what the future will be if this bill is passed. I guess what arises from what you say there is Britain has obligations um, with the Refugee Convention, which largely was drafted by, by British parliamentarians at the time. Um, it's very difficult to sort of reconcile whether those commitments are still certain because this Nationality and Borders Bill largely rose back from those commitments. We have prior authorization coming back. If you you arrive here without the correct paperwork, you might not even be able to to claim asylum. Your, Your claim won't be admissible. Would you say, on the basis of that, that Britain is is looking to to redraft? Like, these are the first steps at trying to redraft the Refugee Convention. Um, Well, let's be clear. Ministers have been explicit um, in defending this bill in Parliament by saying that it is for Parliament to define what this convention, what this international agreement means. Now, that's a very curious thing to say, it seems Mm. to me. And even on a very basic level, let's not get into high-voluting international law. Mm -hmm. What this agreement is, it's it's a contract. It's an agreement, right? We all know what those are. And when one or more people, or two or more people, because it has to be at least two, Mm. enter into an agreement between each other, we don't believe, do we, that you go away from that and one of them gets to decide Mm. actually what it is that the two or more have actually agreed to. That would be a very strange idea of what agreements meant. Mm. And that's the same on the international scene. But it's clearly clearly what's intended by our government, that they will both wreck our asylum system, they're already doing that, to be honest, Mm -hmm. and fundamentally undermine any commitment to either the letter or the spirit of this convention. Mm. Um, I I don't think they care much about the idea of trying to renegotiate it elsewhere, but what may well happen Mm -hmm. is, of course, if this country is so explicit in basically ripping up its own commitment to this international agreement, it's going to be very much harder to try and hold other countries to account Mm -hmm. for meeting their own obligations. And that's all the more so 
when you think that many other countries, those international obligations for a long time have placed far, far greater responsibilities on them than is ever placed on this country. Mm. We see very few refugees compared to many countries around the world. And if we won't see our commitments to that through, goodness knows how we expect others to do so. Yeah, it's um, it's a very difficult bill, this. And um, let's move on to, to people who are, are already in the country. So there is a backlog at the Home Office of about 100,000 asylum claims. Well, what do you make of that? What What is the primary issue at the Home Office? Why is there an inability to accept asylum claims and to, to make a decision on them in a reasonable time? Well, the backlog you've referred to um, has been growing for a while, but over the last year, it has grown very much larger, very much more quickly. Mm. And it has done so for reasons that relate to, firstly, rules that were introduced at the end of 2019 by the government to say it could unilaterally decide not to deal with someone's claim on the basis that it would persuade some other European country to receive the person and receive their claim rather than the UK taking its responsibility. Now, this is a throwback to arrangements that still exist between EU member states, but of course not now hmm. with the UK because we left. Right? Yeah. And the, the, this government somehow persuaded itself that it could sort of unilaterally impose the same sort of arrangement, although working only one way, so only the UK would be sending its responsibilities to other countries, not receiving responsibilities from them, no quid pro quo in this. Mm. And somehow other countries would go for this. Now, <laughs> we wrote, as it happens, literally within days of these rules being published mm. to say, essentially, what on earth are you thinking? And apart from the disaster for the asylum system that's going to have bigger backlogs because of this. Mm. Apart from all the uncertainty and distress you're going to cause to people who need their claims dealt with, how on earth do you think you can make this at all workable? And of course, no sensible response came. And we've had over a year of this now, and we've seen the results that you've referred to. And yet we come back to the bill because this, one of the provisions of this bill mm -hmm. is to take those provisions in the rules and stick them in the primary legislation, essentially entrench the same position that's causing all this mess in, in our supreme law. It's utterly incomprehensible in many ways. It makes no sense whatsoever. But ministers seem to think that all they need to do is essentially to be as nasty and intolerant as possible of people trying to exercise their rights to asylum here. And somehow that will persuade people not to come. Mm. As if, you know, as if it's just a sort of, I don't know, like they think that people seeking asylum are just sort of lounging around with sort of easy choices available to them. Like, oh, what should we do today? Oh, I know, you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll take a nice little boat trip across the channel and, and, and check mm. out the UK. 
which is just it it's very hard in, in many ways to stomach to understand mm -hmm. but it can only come from a very very narrow-minded brutal and quite frankly cruel attitude of just not caring about the lives of the people concerned let alone their rights and our obligations to them isn't a part of you persuaded that this may change that the the media coverage which has shown so much empathy and told the stories of of mothers and children who are escaping ukraine it's given a human face which generally hasn't always been there do you think that they'll g still go ahead with those terrible terrible clauses in the in the nationality on borders bill um I, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. And, 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 you know, I hope, I very much hope that I'm right. And the question that you put is, is I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and the question that you put is, 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 is the right one. But I, I don't believe so for a moment. No, nothing I've seen from um, ministers in response to this suggests anything like that. And I look in the past, I mean, the, the, the biggest example of anything like that what you've just described, mm. which has nothing to do with refugees and asylum, but everything to do with attitudes at the Home Office, was the whole scandal over Windrush mm. and the horrible injustice done to people, British people, by the way, yes. over decades and years, which effectively stripped them of their citizenship rights and treated them as having no right to be in their own country. And for some people, actually went to the le length of expelling them and excluding them. Hmm. Now, yeah, that we had apologies in the end. That scandal still is still ongoing. And those citizenship rights, by the way, continue to be deprived of many, many people in exactly the same way. And it shows that there is no will at this department to fundamentally change its attitude. And I have no doubt that the current ministerial team have no particular desire to change that. And sadly, the history of the politics of this department of successive governments, Labour, Conservative and coalition governments over a very long time gives no cause for optimism either. So for those of us who are really concerned to achieve that sort of change, we should not be kidding ourselves that mm. this latest crisis and the the, the images on, on our TV screens and the public reaction to that is going to fundamentally change the attitude of ministers of government. We have an awful lot of work to do over probably a very long time to achieve something like that. I, I suppose what, what you say as well as speaking about Windrush is whilst, whilst Pretty Patel scrambles to come up with some some plausible refugee policy for, for Ukrainians. At the same time, she has Napier Barracks, this form of institutionalized accommodation, which is still open. And the High Court had so many concerns about health and safeguarding there. Is, is Amnesty concerned about this kind of institutionalized accommodation becoming the norm for, for future refugees? And have you got any human rights concerns about places like Napier Barracks actually still being open? Um, oh, absolutely. And, and the prospect that there are more Napiers in the future and provisions of this bill would 
um, enable that to happen. So I, I think undoubtedly we do have those concerns, but one of the challenges at the moment, quite frankly, mm. is that there are so many profound human rights concerns about all aspects of asylum policy right. <laughs> and the asylum system, looking at this bill, looking at the underlying intentions of government in relation to not just how people are accommodated, accommodated and supported, but whether they can make their claims, whether, as you referred to earlier, they are prosecuted and imprisoned, mm -hmm. whether they are excluded from their rights, whether they can have family reunion, whether the appeal system that's meant to be available to them is obstructed from providing justice, whether they are sent to other countries despite their having legitimate claims to make in, in, in this one. All of these things and many more arise. So keeping sort of pace with what's the priority and the urgency of, of any particular issue is very, very difficult. Hmm. It's, it, it does seem to me from, from everything that you're saying that it, it would be better off to just dismantle the Home Office and what it does and sort of start again. Um, you, you don't sound like you've got any hope about it performing in even a fair way. I don't have a great deal of hope, although now this may sound a bit contradictory. I, I'm also not convinced that the idea of of calls to simply take this away from the Home Office and pass the responsibility somewhere else. The reason for that is that I, I don't know that the underlying political and social attitudes that have sustained this and created it over so long whether they really change if you just create some different body to run the asylum system. And the one thing that I do know from a sort of a legal perspective is that while the Home Office remains responsible for this system, um, it at least is, at least notionally and sometimes really, although it's, it's always hard, um, it is possible to hold it to account for its failures. If you pass responsibility to some sort of independent type of body, mm -hmm. which maybe does the same thing, maybe is full of essentially the same people, maybe with the same attitudes, challenging that body for its failure, which will hide behind its so-called independence, and which ministers will say, well, no, it's not us, it's, it's, it's them over there, will be even harder. And I'd also highlight in relation to this, um, although obviously it only has responsibility in relation to the decision-making process, we do have an independent body that has a plays an important part in that. It's the independent tribunal system. And I think many lawyers will tell you that many people do not receive much by way of justice through that system at this time, partly because of some of the attitudes in that system too. So I don't know, it may be that I'm just a doom monger from... <laughs> you know, any perspective, but yeah, what um, what what are you saying, Steve? What what are uh, these underlying attitudes? Well, the underlying attitudes are essentially xenophobic and and and, and racist. And mm. you know, I don't think we can get past the fact that you know we we live in a country, and 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 I don't, I'm not saying it's unique for this, mm -hmm. but we live in a country that has a very long history of 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 racism. Yeah. And a very long history of a belief in its own um, exceptionalism, 
and xenophobia in terms of attitudes to other countries, other peoples. Um, and I don't think we've ever really got over that. I'm not suggesting that other countries necessarily have either, but I'm concerned with us here. Mm. What are we going to do about our attitudes? Now, those things need working on, right? And we need to front up to that, not, not keep imagining that we can sort of, I don't know, keep moving things around and, and, and sort of angling for, for this type of reconstruction of an institution or another or a new policy on this or a new policy on that. Not that those things aren't real and important, but actually we have some underlying issues to address, all of us, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Socially, politically, um, about just what our own personal attitudes and those of our neighbours are and how they contribute to how our society works and the things then that it does. You know, none of this happens in a vacuum and we all have some responsibility for it. I mean, so from what you say... This, this Nationality and Borders Bill, its framework actually entrenches discrimination of some people because it sort of creates a two-tier system of deserving and undeserving refugees in that those people who are resettled from, say, Syria or from Afghanistan, they arrive here with entitlements and arrive with a humanitarian visa and can work and can get council housing and that sort of thing. But people who land here and make an asylum claim, they face going to, to Napier barracks. So how do we overcome this, given that the legislation allows that type of thing? Well, all we can do is, in every way, shape or possible, mm. um, seek to resist that speak out against that, disapprove that. When we have opportunities, vote against that. You know, act in every way that we can to show that we are dissatisfied with that, unwilling to tolerate it and seek to persuade our neighbours to do the same. Mm. You know, and, 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 you know, all of us have to do that. Um, by the way, I... I, I <laughs> I, I think that in some ways it's worse than you than you suggest. I mean, it's not really about an intention to have a two-tier asylum system. It's really an intention to have pretty much no asylum system at all. The number of people that this country has ever been interested in resettling mm -hmm. is a paltry number. And the only time that we had a, a modestly significant resettlement scheme thus far was Syria, maybe we're going to have one in Afghanistan. And that has only been because of particular media, public and political pressure that has been responded to, often again, piecemeal and last minute, to try and make a news story go away. So no real commitment to Afghans or Syrians, actually. Mm. Um, but really the underlying thing is to try and basically... Not to, play to our not part at all. Come here at yeah, all. absolutely. I, I believe so. I think that's that, that's really what's going on. Hmm. That's that's extraordinary. This bill also curiously brings in some age assessment tools. What what does Amnesty make of that? Because there are a lot of children who come here on their own who are deemed to be adults. Like in terms of safeguarding, that's 
terribly dangerous and this will this will now be enabled by primary legislation what do you make uh, of it well I'll, i'll say one thing about this uh, but I'll, i'll caveat it that amnesty has not done a lot of work on the age assessment uh, right. question but but the safeguarding question is a hugely important one and and it needs to be thought about much more carefully partly because safeguarding is often the supposed justification and it has been with this bill mm. for these measures to become even more exclusive about how age assessment is conducted and to try and exclude more people mm. from being recognized accepted as children mm. because it's constantly said by the home office both officials and ministers that there is some safeguarding risk if an adult is treated as a child and is therefore in the system that provides for children right now you got to think about that for a moment is there i mean just because um i i you know there may be an adult doesn't make them dangerous to children it it may mean that they shouldn't be treated as a child i don't, you know obviously if they're not a child they they, they shouldn't be but it doesn't make them dangerous to children adults aren't necessarily dangerous to children mm. any more than children can be dangerous to children yeah. of course some children are dangerous some adults are dangerous which is why children should be in safe systems which are supervised by the likes of social services not in isolated adult settings where that supervision isn't provided so the real fear the safeguarding fear if that's what you're concerned about is not the idea that an adult may end up being amongst children in a system that's set up to oversee and ensure that all the children are safe from each other and anyone else in that system including the professionals who work in it the real risk safeguarding risk is to take a child out of that system and put them in a place where there's no such supervision at all yeah it's it's very difficult because alongside that is also in this bill an expansion of of the detention estate and uniquely in britain um there is no time limit on on detention now amnesty was recently involved in a in a pilot with um a, a charitable organization in in Newcastle called Action Action Foundation where there was detention in the community well what did you guys glean from that steve and is that is that the way forward to sort of try and host people in who may be subject to detention within the community within the charitable sector um so I I I don't I don't, I think that the the way forward mm-hmm. is to radically reduce the use of immigration powers in two profound ways right one far fewer people should be being detained at all mm-hmm. and secondly there needs to be some time constraint on the exercise of detention and frankly that time constraint should be very very short indeed right, right. we're talking hours and days the sort of period that it would legitimately take if needed to compel a legitimate removal of someone from the country not leaving someone banged up essentially in the hope that that's going to pressurize them to leave 
or that at some point in the future it may be possible um, to, to compel their departure. That's not what should be going on. If there are other concerns about um, people being dangerous in the community, whether they're British or not British, there are other systems to deal with that. That's not an immigration matter, mm. right? So um, it's not about detention in the community or detention anywhere, frankly. Mm. It is about people being able to live in communities, everybody. And yes, Amnesty acknowledges, um, which you know some people don't, fair enough, but Amnesty acknowledges that at the very extreme end, detention is a power that might legitimately be used to remove someone mm -hmm. if you have legitimate reason to believe that, firstly, it's completely right and proper that they should be required to leave, and they absolutely will not, and you have the plane ready to go, and it's going to be in a few hours' time, and the only way to make that happen will be to detain the person. Um, Amnesty would accept that to be human rights compliant, and it would be using detention for a legitimate purpose. Anything else is just using detention for something else, um, and it shouldn't happen. Yeah, no, that's that's a very progressive, very clear position that, that Amnesty is taking. Um, Dominic Robb is currently conducting some consultation on reforming the Human Rights Act. Which, which one of those human rights would, would Amnesty seek to, to reform, if at all? Is, is this necessary at all? No. No, of course, of course it's not. And, you know, the government's not interested in doing anything, frankly, but trying to um, protect itself mm. against challenges, legitimate challenges, about its failure to uphold its human rights responsibilities. And, and that doesn't apply in just the areas that we're discussing. Mm. It applies more, more broadly. Um, so no, that there's no legitimate purpose to this. We have a perfectly good Human Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And if ministers want to do, want to go further, and they want to embed some uh, further rights for us all, then Amnesty would be very supportive of that. But there's no grounds to take away or reduce or constrain um, the rights that we have in our Human Rights Act, which importantly makes them real for us because it puts it in our domestic law as opposed to sitting in some international um, instrument which we can't readily access. The problem we've just discussed actually about the Refugee Convention, which is not part of our domestic law. So, no, we desperately do not want to see any change to that. And there's no legitimacy to what the government is about here. Right. And finally, Steve, um, it, it's reported and this number is not verified. It's reported by, by research that's been done by, by academics that there are between 800,000 and 1.1 million people in Britain currently today who are undocumented. Boris Johnson is on the record when he was initially campaigning to be mayor of London a number of years ago as as being as saying he would be in favor of an amnesty 
to be given to to people who don't have a status or who have a precarious status. Will will Amnesty UK hold them to account for that and try and regularise those people's status? Because I can only imagine that the lives that they're living below the radar cause a lot of human rights concerns and modern slavery and those type of things. What would you what would be your response to that? Well, I have a few thoughts about that. I mean, firstly, you're absolutely right that um, we have a system that uh, basically encourages and enables mm. extreme abuses in our country by very unscrupulous people and sometimes organized gangs of, of, of people um, through such practices as modern slavery and other exploitation. And we should all be worried about that because it's not, it's, it's, it's not good for anybody. I mean, obviously it's particularly harmful for the people exploited, but, but those, those groups that, that do that exploitation, they're responsible for lots of other harms in our society too. Mm. And so, so we should all want to see an end to that. Um, it's also clearly the case that leaving people undocumented um, for prolonged periods of time and indefinitely mm-hmm. um, does put people in that position where they are readily, readily exploited in this way. So it produces um, essentially the uh, environment in which that exploitation and criminality can thrive. And so regularizing people's position would mm-hmm. be a perfectly good um, response to that. Um, we should be a little um, cautious about a couple of things in relation to this, I mm. think. One is that I, I honestly do not know what the true numbers are. People yeah. like to talk about large numbers because they get attention. Sometimes, mm. in truth, maybe my organisation does that too, and I think we should all perhaps do a little bit less of it. Right. Um, but no doubt there are significant numbers of people in the situation that you describe. Um whether everybody should have their immigration situation regularized or not, I, 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 I honestly do not know. But certainly people who've been languishing here for many years, I, I can't see any good reason not to do this. It would make absolute sense. Um, but I'm also concerned, actually, mm-hmm. that some of the people that we're talking about, they, they, they don't need their immigration status regularized. And this is a shocking thing. <laughs> Yeah. Many of them actually need their British citizenship vindicated or recognised. Mm. Do you know there are tens of thousands, certainly tens of thousands of people born here who grow up here, mm. entitled to the citizenship of our country, who continue to be excluded from it. And the answer to, to, to people in that situation is not to give them leave to remain. <laughs> it's mm. actually to recognise the citizenship to which they're entitled. So I think a whole degree of sophistication is needed around this question to identify what needs and rights people properly have and ensure that they are fulfilled and in a way that addresses the starting point in your question, which is, you know, stop this continued enabling of, you know, truly awful exploitation in our country. which would be for the better of all of us. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Steve, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
So thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at Coventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.